Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's Wednesday, July 28th and I'm your host, Ella. I hope everyone survived okay and is now enjoying a little more freedom after our fifth lockdown here in Melbourne. We've got some great content for you here on Wednesday Breakfast today. But first, a quick rundown of the latest changes to restrictions. So, travel restrictions and exercise limits have been lifted. Schools have reopened, as have shops, restaurants and cafes with capacity limits. And outdoor gatherings of up to 10 people are permitted. Masks will continue to be mandatory and the ban on visitors to the home will remain in place for at least the next two weeks. And while today's numbers haven't been released yet, I'm pleased to say that all 10 of the new cases announced yesterday were in isolation for their entire infectious period and no new exposure sites were added for the third night in a row. All right, and now on to today's show. So first up, Claudia is speaking with two members of the Elstonwick community who were part of a successful campaign to transform a local golf course into a wetland nature reserve. Later on, Alice will be speaking to Claire Hassel from the Long COVID support group in the UK about Claire's experience of Long COVID, research and the work that still needs to be done. At around 8 o'clock, we're going to hear about health and well-being for migrant and refugee women with Maria H., a senior policy and advocacy officer with the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. And we'll be finishing up the show on a lighter note. Claudia will be speaking with Theo Boltman, a young performer in La Mama Theatre's contemporary teen work, The Mermaid. So stay tuned. We're going to kick off with a song from Arthur Verakai. This is Caboclo. Caboclo quando sai a do sol pela manhã Planta algodão, planta nuvens pelo chão A noite quando volta, traz estrelas no embornal Cofres do sertão, que semeia no quintal Descendo do horizonte, ele tira seu chapéu Olhando o molho d'água, que cuspia para o céu é, 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 é. Deitado na paisagem na folhagem rolou uma manhã Passeando pela mão O vento no seu rosto Só pra leve, tira o sol 
Como tiro o pó de um velho paletó E pondo os pés na lama Seu sapato feito só De barro pra ser casco Quando então pisar na grama up we'll be hearing from two long-time advocates for the Elston Week Park Nature Reserve in Melbourne's Bayside area. Marcus Gwynn has been active in the community campaign to transform a disused local golf course into a wetland and woodland nature reserve. Natalie Davey is co-president of the Elston Week Park Association, a coalition of community groups working to maintain the reserve as a tranquil refuge for wildlife and people. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Can you first tell us uh, what is the Elston Week Park Nature Reserve? So it's um, 14 hectares of land in Inner Melbourne, so about seven kilometres from the CBD, which was, up until a few years ago, a, a fairly tired and underutilised nine-hole golf course. And... Um, as we speak now, it's in the middle of a transformation um, to becoming an amazing 14 hectares of wetland um, and nature reserve. Elstonwick is probably the next major suburb down from St Kilda. Um, the reserve just touches um, the Pean Highway. So it's seven kilometres down the Pean Highway, southeast of Melbourne. And very close also to the bay. Walking, of, walking distance. Yeah kilometer or so yeah so it started out as a golf course how do you get from that point to where you're at now where nature reserve with ponds and birds and much more is developed it's been a reasonably long journey so it's been in some respects a long journey in other respects not um the golf course had declining numbers and wasn't particularly well looked after and the golf course operator at the time um, sought um, approval from the local council to build a driving range. The local residents objected quite strenuously to the driving range and that was knocked on the head by council but um, council identified they needed probably a better plan in terms of what was going to become of that space. the, um, they engaged a consultative process with a whole bunch of community members to um, 
evaluate on behalf of council what might happen. And that that panel came up with um, the their preference was for it to become a nature reserve. And that actually went to council as um, at a council meeting, some hundred odd residents spoke to the motion before council and then the council rejected it, much to our surprise. Um, following that defeat, about 15, 20 community groups got together and formed what was then called um, the Ellsworth Park Coalition. And those 15 or 20 groups formed a committee, formed an organisation with the goal of lobbying the council and trying to influence anyone who would listen um, about the benefits of that being a nature reserve. And um, after 18 months of hard work lobbying councillors, the decision went back to council again and uh, they decided this time that it would become a nature reserve. I read somewhere that there were five possible plans that were put to the community. Um, the community reference panel, um, yeah, the council engaged um, an external consultant to actually manage that um, uh, process. And they looked at um, a whole bunch of different options, including sporting ovals, um, a nature reserve, keeping it as golf. There were other um, other things were also considered. So essentially, I think, they, I think they came down to three options. One was increasing sport, one was keeping it as a golf course, and one was making it to a nature reserve. And so the council eventually decided on the nature reserve, um, and probably because of the overwhelming community support. Can I also add just a little bit of the backstory in the golf course itself, which is quite interesting in that because it was so neglected, there were things like logs and trees that fell left lying around. And the golf course itself, even while all that lobbying was happening by a community, was, was becoming quite good habitat for native species, uh, which helped the lobbying effort because there were, was data being collected about the animals and birds that were already there in the golf course. And as, as um, a lot of people might know, golf courses are quite good uh, homes for um, animals and birds because they are not as visited by humans. Um, and, and actually some golf courses make better uh, homes for animals and birds than, than um, some habitats that are made for them because they, they actually work quite well, but some don't. And in, in this case, uh, you know, a lot of what's being done is enhancing a lot of the values that were there because of the neglect, you know, with nature being left to its, its own devices to a degree. What was the story of the piece of land before the golf course? Marcus can probably talk to that more. I know it was a trotting track at one stage. Um, Marcus, I think um, so oh, it's, been a golf okay. course. it's been a golf course for, I think, almost 100 years. So, oh, wow, OK. Uh, we have photos dating back to the 1930s which show the golf course, which is at that point just looks like an open paddock. But um, it's been, been a golf course for a long while. But um, um, changing preferences for people mean that golf is not the same game it was maybe 30, 40 years ago. So. Yeah, it's really interesting can you tell us a little bit about what people wanted um, to get out of the experience? Was it more about the protection of wildlife and giving the wildlife a home or was it more about amenity for the community? 
Um, both, um, and you know, the, the the difficulty we have in you know any built-up city is there are competing priorities for the limited resource, and they're not making any more land. Um, and housing is encroaching all the time. And you know, I'm clearly I'm biased. I mean, I think the environment is the best use for the land. And part of the message that we were trying to communicate um, to those who would listen as part of the lobbying process was about um, equity in terms of the facilities that are available. The difficulty with sport is that it's um, compelling and attractive. Um, it's an easy story to tell. Um, you know, the recent increase in girls and women playing AFL for argument's sake, who doesn't want to see more girls getting out there playing football? Um, so that's an easy, compelling story. Um, the city of Bayside, though, has around 40 to 50 sports fields, um, which equates to around 40% of Bayside's open space. Um, another big chunk, the other big chunk of that is actually the beach. So a huge part of the public open space is already sports fields. And from an environment point of view, sports fields are just a monoculture of green grass and they don't do that much for the habitat. But those 40% of open space are used by somewhere between 2 to 5% of Bayside residents. So it's a small number of people who use a, a large amount of space and they use it mainly just on the weekends and the rest of the week it doesn't do much. And so part of the argument about, about making this a nature reserve is to actually to bring some equity and to, some balance to that. Um, and this is 14 hectares, which will be nature-focused. It's still a long way behind where it could be from a nature point of view. There is still a huge predominance of sports fields. Um, but it does bring some equity and balance back to that equation. And that was a key part of the message. Other huge kind of protective amenity, I suppose, for residents, particularly downstream from Elster Creek, which was one of the arguments as well used for the um, reclamation of wetland in the 14 hectares was for flood um, prevention or at least mitigation further downstream. Um, and there's and also to increase uh, water quality in Port Phillip Bay. So, so there were also some other points for the impact of the park also spreads beyond um, the actual park itself and the amenities offered for, for plants and wildlife and, and also people enjoying that. I think that's it's the point's well made. So when we're advocating for the reserve, we established we had four main goals for the reserve um, and the council has since adopted those four goals as goals for the reserve, which is very heartening. And those four goals were one, uh, the environment, if you like, environment, biodiversity, two, public amenity, just an amazing space for people to go, um, three, for flood mitigation, because downstream of the reserve, the reserve um, is at the end of a catchment of some 3,000 square kilometres and the end of the catchment is Elwood and Elwood is subject to quite a lot of flooding. And then the fourth goal was water quality and water harvesting. You'll see in the end of a catchment just near the bay, the water that comes down Elster Creek is some of the most polluted in Melbourne. I'm Claudia and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm talking with Natalie Davey and Marcus Gwynn about the community campaign to create a nature reserve in Elston Week. We're going to take a short break now, but don't go away. When we come back, Claudia will be continuing her conversation with Marcus and Natalie. 
we'll be hearing about aquatic plants, birds, and the volunteers who work at Elstonwick Nature Reserve. But first, this is Detagli by Ornella Venoni. È inutile tentare di dimenticare Per molto tempo ancora nella vita dovrai cercare Dettagli così piccoli che tu non sei ancora pronto per capire che comunque contano per dire chi siamo noi se vedi un'altra donna camminare nella tua via e ti ricordi quando c'ero io la colpa è sua Il ritmo bilanciato del suo passo Sono ritagli di dettagli Se no perché Ti sta immediatamente ricordando Proprio di me Io so che un'altra donna sta inventando Una frase fatta Parole come quelle che ho già detto Mi sembra matta Non credo che ti voglia così tanto bene Errori di grammatica lei non ne fa E senza errori non sia mai felicità E se farai l'amore con qualcuno, fallo tacendo. Perché se dice a un'altra il nome mio, ti stai sbagliando. Non tutti hanno piacere di sentire parlare di qualcuno che non c'è. Sono dettagli che fanno capire che pensi a me Non dirmi che nel cuore non ti resta più quasi niente A furia di dettagli stai cambiando e già si sente La piccola scintilla fa il grande incendio, l'amore tuo non può morire così. Comunque se tu hai bisogno di qualcosa, io sono qui. È inutile tentare di dimenticare. Per molto tempo ancora nella vita dovrai cercare dettagli così piccoli che tu non vuoi capire 
Before the break, we heard from Marcus and Natalie, two passionate community advocates, speaking about the community action that has resulted in the creation of a wetland nature reserve in the heart of Elstonwick. We're now going to pick up the conversation again to learn about wildlife and volunteers who are transforming the park. Here's Claudia. So what range of bird life and nature will live in the reserve when it's fully developed? Can you give us a picture of the place it will become? Um, so the reserve already has some endangered and threatened species. Um, uh, in it, the, the reserve is home for parts of the year to a great um, a great egret, which um, is a threatened species. Other vulnerable species include Nankine night herons, which breed there. Um, grey-headed flying foxes roost there. But in addition to that, there's just a myriad of other bird life. Um, there's purple swamp hens, there's um, um, eastern rosellas, um, all sorts of different birds. I guess the, the real species, the real group of animals which are going to be best catered for in the reserve are going to be the smaller birds. The smaller birds tend to get chased out of a lot of parks by noisy miners. The open park with grass and eucalypts is really great habitat for noisy miners. And what happens is they chase out um, a lot of the smaller birds that tended to have um, habitat in bush areas. And that's going to recreate a lot of environment for those smaller birds. Um, um, there's a there's huge range of them, and mostly the names escape me at the moment, but it's that, that area. One of the really interesting things that's going on at the moment, which has been community-driven, is there's a lot of work going on um, in terms of surveying the different um, fauna that exist in the reserve. So there's monthly bird surveys, which are um, we have volunteers from BirdLife Australia who are counting and tracking the, the birds and the range of species, so both the numbers and range of species throughout the reserve. Um, there's been microbat monitoring, so devices which record the number of microbats. And so far, we've got four different species of microbats which have been discovered in the reserve. And the microbats are the tiny ones. They're the same, often the size of a matchbox, and they're the ones that fly by echolocation. Uh, there's been insect and moth surveys of the night. There's been Rakali surveys. Um, and the point of these surveys now is in the future, we expect that the reserve is going to be teeming with life and teeming with birds and all sorts of things. And one of the things that we're trying to do is establish a bit of a baseline. So when the reserve is a great success um, down the track, we can point to how much it has improved. The thing is that improvement is tracked by the community themselves. So all the um, surveys and are, are run by volunteer groups and there's an open invitation for people to take part. And, in fact, the baseline survey for the birds is finished, but we're continuing doing those bird surveys because they're really playing a wonderful educative role because pe people are really interested to, as am I, uh, to understand who is in the reserve um, and where and and when so so we're able to track that on a monthly basis which is great and i believe natalie there's a, a huge army of volunteers who perform a number of roles you've talked about the survey side of it what are the other things that people in the community are wanting to get involved in and helping with uh, well, the, the, the biggest um, need at the moment and, and as soon as lockdown ends, we'll be leaping back to propagating aquatic plants. Um, Marcus might talk a bit more in a minute about the development of the chain of ponds. There's a, 
uh, an entire wetland system being built, which is a, it's quite separate from the wetlands that will come off Elster Creek, even though it is connected in a small way. Um, and all the plants, for the, it's going to require thousands and thousands of aquatic plants. Um, there's a contractor for the council that's providing quite a few of them. I think something like, uh, Marcus can tell me the numbers, maybe 27,000 uh, or, or a few more of the aquatic plants, but the rest are going to be made up by the teams of volunteers. Um, so there's a lot of aquatic plant propagation that people can get involved in and then eventually planting. Um, at this stage, I think volunteers have created about 2,000 plants hmm. and uh, about 1,000 plants have already gone in. Wow. So we, it was great when lockdown ended for the first time, we could just get our hands dirty and also connect. It was just fantastic. And, um, and there's a real interest uh, in it and it's the best way to learn as well as just getting involved um, and there's a whole lot of really interesting plants that um, are wonderful to learn about and work with. And also many have been locally extinct for a long time. So it's very, very exciting being involved in a project where you know you're bringing back plants that um, have been missing from the landscape for such a long time. Um, and hopefully those plants that are used to grow in those areas will attract um, all these birds and animals that we're hoping to get back. And you've mentioned the volunteers um, providing the labour in terms of planting. And knowledge. Is the project on the whole being funded adequately by the council? Um, it's a big project. Short answer is yes. Um, the council is, you know, is hugely committed to the reserve and their support has been amazing. Um, but their support is because the community is behind it as well. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. The more the, the, more the community is behind it, the more the council um, is willing to support it. But we've been um, amazed at how strong council support has been. You know, it should also be mentioned the federal government um, has um, contributed a million dollars to the reserve as well. Um, and we hope that at some point in the future the state government might also do so as well. And in terms of visitors and accessibility, are visitors going to be encouraged or is the primary purpose to let the nature uh, have the site to themselves as a habitat? Um, we're aiming for both. It's a trade-off with most of these facilities about the degree to which people get to enjoy it and the degree to which you lock it up and protect it. And what the master plan has got as part of it, a feature of it, is a, a one-hectare island right in the middle, which will be a high-conservation area um, that is basically locked away. So it'll be surrounded by water, so it'll be inaccessible to both people and feral dogs and cats and foxes. Um, but the rest of the reserve will be um, highly accessible with different levels of access. So there'll be some main boulevards through the middle where people can stop and, and look at the scenes and the wetlands. So in the reserve, ultimately, there'll be around six to seven hectares of wetlands. Um, and so there'll be lots of spots for people to stop and have a look. For those who want to explore, there'll be trails for them to get off the beaten path and actually explore a little bit more. Which, so it's about having something for everyone, um, uh, but 
you know, the, the educative process of the reserve and actually teaching people about the environment and the value of the environment is, is really, really important. You mentioned accessibility there. I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about what will be accessible to those people who aren't as mobile. Um, the council has a, um, I forget his exact title, Disability and Accessibility Officer, and he's been working with the community groups and the people who have been developing the reserve to make sure that to the extent that's practical, that people who might have a limitation one way or the other still get to enjoy the reserve. And that, um, so the primary, the primary paths and boulevards which we're going through the reserve would be suitable for people with limited mobility, say in wheelchairs, or someone who may need someone to walk with them to help them, or someone who may be vision impaired. Um, and so there'll be a range of areas. Then there'll be secondary paths through the reserve where those people may go with some assistance and then ultimately there'll be areas which may not be suitable for them as well. But it's about making sure that those people are forgotten as part of this process and there's enough experience, sight, sounds, whatever, for them to actually enjoy the reserve um, as anyone else would. That's fantastic. And finally, um, how can people get involved if they'd like to volunteer or if they want to keep up to date with developments? Uh, to get involved in all the volunteer activities, it, it would be probably best to go through the Elsenwick Park Association website. At the moment, we're relying quite a lot on our Facebook site to share when events are coming up. So I'd also recommend that uh, you can become a member of the Elsenwick Park Association and that gives you then access to our newsletters which give you advance warning of when we're doing things. That's and are you open to interest from non-local residents as well? Absolutely yeah I mean look we, we, we do have some young students who come from far and wide they may have had a connection or grown up in the area and we've got at the moment quite a few um, environmental science students and they're traveling quite a way to take part on the weekends um, and that also feeds into their studies so we can sign off for their professors that they've uh, put in those volunteer hours so uh, that's that's been terrific seeing their interest um, and there are other groups we're also starting up our water quality uh, group so um, there's about a 14-year history of collecting water quality by volunteer groups which is led by Melbourne Water. Um, the Elster Creek has their own uh, group so that's going to start up as soon as we get our, our fresh batch of chemicals from Melbourne Water so yeah there's many many different activities um, for different interests of, of people to get involved in the park. That was Natalie Davey and Marcus Gwynn talking about the community campaign creating a nature reserve in the Bayside suburb of Elstonwick. You can find out more about the reserve and how to volunteer by visiting the Elstonwick Park Association website, www.elstonwickpark.com all one word.org or via their Facebook page. Next up, TK Mazda featuring Carrie Foe. This is Don't Call Again.
get ahead, poking into my field But you're messy with the blend, see the smoke and the mirrors Distant with the truth, trying to get control Instead you're causing damage you don't even know You just carry on carelessly, not alarm Tripping over, holding back Ooh, I feel Ain't no switch in the You can't come around, I won't smoke no bud with ya Tried to play me like I'm crazy lately You been moving shady, thought I was your lady And one day we'd ride Mercedes But now the love is dead, can't believe a thing you said Must have slipped and bumped your head You should probably get that check Cause I saw you on the scene with that bitch named Antoinette I regret the day we met, would rather be strangers instead So, we Nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family because you have a date with Özesu and Özgü. 3CR... 8:55 a.m. Thursdays 6:30 p.m. to 7 p.m. See you all then. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and I'm Alice. Last Friday, just as we went into our fifth lockdown, I spoke to Claire Hasty from the Long Covid support group 
all the way from the UK. Our understanding of long COVID is very small and people who are experiencing long COVID in Australia and on a global level are barely supported by the social care currently in place. Claire Hastie is a member volunteer and one of the true leaders behind the long COVID support group. And today she's talking to us about her experience, the research that is taking place to understand long COVID a little bit more and what needs to be done. I started by asking Claire what long COVID looks like in the UK, but most importantly, on a global level. The actual symptoms and the impact, doesn't matter where you're from, um, they can be enormously debilitating. Um, A study was published today in the UK, but from an international group of um, researchers who are actually people living with long COVID. Actually, most of them are based in the US. And that shows that over 200 symptoms um, have been experienced by patients. Um, And at the time of doing the survey, there were seven people who had been ill seven months and um, almost 70% of them were unable to work either at all or to their previous capacity. So it's changing people's lives. Um, In the UK, The government is starting to put in place help. So over the last few months, we've had clinics in England only. So if you're in Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland, you don't have access. But actually, we need research to catch up. So those clinics don't actually really know how to help patients. So we're largely abandoned, frankly. Um, And people are in a lot of pain. As I mentioned, they're losing their livelihoods, relationships are breaking down. So it really is life-changing and it can affect people of all ages, including children. Um, We have have a Facebook group with 42,000 members in 100 countries, including several hundred Australians. Um, And we have a sister group, Long COVID Kids. So no matter what age or how healthy and fit and active you, you, you are and how good your diet is, that's no protection. In our group, we have a Commonwealth Games athlete, we have several marathon runners, and people who are really highly active. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how tough and determined and fit you are, it can still floor you. And what are the type of symptoms that we're seeing with long COVID? So, um, as I mentioned, there have been over 200 that have been documented in a research paper that was published today, um, and that can affect anywhere in your body. So um, from hair loss to COVID toes and anywhere in between. But people tend to talk a lot about breathlessness and fatigue, which which are common symptoms. But actually, people don't talk as much um, as uh, about the cognitive effect. And that's actually, for lots of people, a reason that they can't work. I was unable to work for more than a year. And even though I had debilitating physical symptoms, I'm lucky to have a job that I can do from home and desk-based. So it wasn't the physical symptoms as much as the cognitive ones that have been the barrier. I was well, I remain unable to concentrate, um, to absorb and retain information. And some people struggle to find words. Um, so, yeah, it really can affect anywhere. I mean, researchers are hopefully working very hard on this. Um, we know that the NIH in the US 
has put 1.15 billion US dollars for researching long COVID, um, and the UK government has put 50 million pounds to that. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm sure people in other countries also are researching it. But as you say, it's such a widespread thing that the main thing that I believe we need to get to is to understand the mechanism. What is causing this? So there are various hypotheses, all of which might well be correct. So I think people are saying you may have one or all of some kind of autoimmune system um, that's been triggered. It may be that there's persistent virus sort of hidden away in your body in a kind of reservoir in people's gut and that kind of thing, because we know that some studies have found it even several months after infection. Um, and also there's, um, we know that there's organ damage, that the inflammation, the cytokine storm or, or, or other effects have caused. So there's another study called the cover scan study in the UK. They have a special type of MRI scan, which has picked up that 770% of people, mostly who had been who'd not been hospitalized, had detectable damage to one or more of their organs. Um, we don't know whether that will persist or whether it'll resolve over time. And I think that's one of the most difficult things with this with long COVID is that we don't know we don't know when we'll recover, whether we'll recover and how fully we'll recover. Wow. And you mentioned before that it affects people socially as well and the relationships they have. And I'm sure as for family dynamics, it must be really hard as well. I think it's a huge strain on relationships um, because you know, your partner, and in my case, my children, become your carer so my my children actually have long covid also um so when i when we fell ill um my eldest son was 15 and my twin sons were 11 um and they all also had long covid um, and in fact my now 12 year old twins still do have long covid they've been off school several days this week with their relapsing symptoms but thankfully my my now 17 year old he even though he had he had what you call COVID toes, where you're, it's something to do with your circulation and your blood vessels, they think, but your his toes went an alarming shade of dark purple, almost blackening um, for several months and blistered and peeled. Um, but he felt fine in himself, which is just as well, because I'm a single parent, so he had to learn to cook pretty sharpish. He was a classic teenage lad that I'd been trying to persuade to help me do around the house for years, but to no avail. But he had to step up because I was bedridden for almost three months. And even when I stopped being bedridden, I was largely bedridden and I would be able to pot around the house and that was about it. So he had to learn to cook, he had to cut the grass, he had to do all the laundry. My, we had friends and family um, shopping because I didn't even have the strength to even find my laptop, never mind switch it on and set up online deliveries at the time. Um, so, yeah, my kids had to grow up pretty quickly. And, and at that time, were you supported by the government in any way? Were you able to get some financial support and any kind of social support as well? In the UK, you don't get any extra financial help through long COVID. You get the usual social security type safety net that, that other people might get. So there are you know, disability benefits, but I think and for a lot of those, I think you have to probably be ill for 12 months or more. I mean, certainly that was the case, whether they are changing things now and whether people who've been ill. I know when people were applying, when they'd only, in inverted commas, been ill six months last summer, they were being turned down for those. But now that long COVID is more recognised in the UK, I don't, I don't know whether people are seeing more success 
or whether they still have to wait till they've been ill for 12 months or more. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's incredibly. I mean, people, as I say, they they they're losing their livelihoods. They're having to sell their homes and their assets and and rely on families to to borrow money. Um, it's it's incredibly stressful. Mm. And do you know if the symptoms are very different in children to adults? You mentioned that there's a different. You've got some different Facebook groups for support. Are the symptoms very different as well? So some of the symptoms overlap between adults and children, but they do, you know, there has tended to be a different presentation. And of course, with the, some of the new variants coming out, the symptoms in adults are presenting differently than what they have done in, in adults previously as well. So it's a bit of a moving feast. But um, my children are, 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 I think, more typical of some, not well, there's nothing typical about long COVID. I'm going to correct what I just said. <laughs> but, but children tend to get a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, um, so sickness, diarrhea, really painful cramps, bloating, um, and they tend to also get a lot of, of rashes, which again, you know, adults get all of those things also. Um, but so there is this kind of slightly different presentation and with the Delta variant. Um, that's predominant now in the UK. Um, I don't know what the difference is between adults and children so much, but it's the symptoms tend to be like a summer cold or a um, or hay fever. So a lot of you know in the UK, the government has not done a great job at communicating what the symptoms are. So I think a huge number of people um, are unwittingly spreading the virus, thinking, "Oh, I've just got a sniffle. It's just a bit of hay fever. I'm just going to go into work. I'm just going to send my kids into school." Um, and, and cases are, are rising rapidly. Wow. And I don't want to speculate or um, mislead anybody either, but do you know if um, the vaccines can, are they preventing long COVID? Um, it's a little bit early to say with the vaccines, but we know that people who are double vaccinated are catching COVID, um, the Delta variant, um, really quite you know, in great numbers in the UK. So I think it reduces the, the the chances of you getting it and I think it reduces the chances of you transmitting it, but it doesn't eliminate those. So lots of people um, who were in hospital have been double vaccinated. Um, and and we, again, it's it's a little bit early days, but we there are there is evidence that people who've been double vaccinated and caught COVID are developing long COVID. So you shouldn't get any false sense of, of security or complacency just because you've been vaccinated because the, the variants are breaking through. Um, and obviously, while any population is partially vaccinated, that apparently, you know, that causes, that gives great conditions for more variants likely to emerge as well. Mm. And if you have long COVID, are you able to get the vaccine? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I... I got mine as soon as I possibly could and in the UK unlike some countries um, children are not being vaccinated at the moment we know that in places like US Canada in the various EU countries and Israel children over the age of 12 uh, are being vaccinated but not as yet in the UK um, but at my because my son who was then 16 he's been my carer so I was able to um, to get him vaccinated because of that you're listening to 3CR. This is Alice. I'm talking to Claire from the Long Covid Support Group. 
and this group is a global support network on Facebook and online for people suffering with long COVID and that's at longcovid.org. My final question to Claire was how do we support the Long COVID support group and its global members including its hundreds of Australian members right here? I guess it's, that's really kind of you to offer. It's not really about supporting us so much as supporting people out there who may have long COVID. I think there's a huge amount of people who won't know that they have this. So, for example, I have a good friend who mentioned to me at various points over the weeks at one point she mentioned that she'd been checked out for arthritic hands which she developed she's in her early 40s um, and then in a separate conversation she went mm, you know I always had a stomach of iron but actually I've had diarrhea um, every single day for um almost a year now um, at the time of her telling me this, you know, ever since I had a nasty cough in March 2020, which was a real, the first wave in the UK. Mm. So and she hadn't joined the dots and, and realised actually diarrhoea, arthritic hands, nasty cough. And she's and she knows now that she actually has long COVID. So I think there's huge numbers of people that just don't realise what's going on arthritic pain is a case in point i know several people who kind of go oh i'm really stiff these days i can hardly move and and they don't connect that that could have anything to do with their illness and in fact even if you're asymptomatic at the acute phase you can develop long covid so there are people developing symptoms with never knowingly having been ill in the in the first instance so it's an incredibly difficult thing to pin down wow. but yeah anyone out there who is thinks they may have long covid we have a website longcovid.org where we have resources on there and there are links to our facebook group which is a global group and um, anyone is welcome to join it's a very warm community we offer activities in there such as chair yoga and opera breathing and we have a choir and we, we have social zooms and all that kind of thing so you know please if anyone is, is out there and needing some help then then we're here you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and that was Claire Hasty from the Long Covid Support Group. The group is run out of the UK but their Facebook groups are global. They are also split between adults and children. So for anyone experiencing Long Covid, do check out their website, join the Facebook groups just to also be aware of what those symptoms are. As Claire mentioned, there are many people around the UK currently who may be experiencing long COVID and not knowing what they have. So it's really important, I think, for us to just get up to date with what it looks like. What are those 200 symptoms that, are, that have come out of the recent studies and the research? So if you'd like to learn more about long COVID, head to longcovid.org and that's their support network and their group. You'll also find the links to their Facebook groups. Accent Women it seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Well, a 
quickly when matched to the face of Maria. All the harps they sound empty when she lifts her lips to the sky. All the brown of her skin makes her hair seem a soft golden rainfall. It spills from the mountains to the bottomless depths of her eyes. Well, she stands all around me. Her hands slowly sift in the sunshine. All the laughter that lingered down deep neath her smiling is free. Well, it spins and it twirls like a hummingbird lost in the morning. And caresses the south wind and silently sails to the sea. All the sculptor stands stricken, and the artist he throws away his brushes. When her image comes dancing. The sun, she turns sullen with shame, and the birds they go silent, and the wind stops his sad, mournful singing. When the trees of the forest start gently to whispering her name. So softly she wanders. I'll desperately follow her footsteps, and I'll chase after shadows that offer a trace of her side. Oh, they promise eternally. That she lies hidden within them, but I find they've deceived me, and sadly I bid them goodbye. So the serpent slides slowly away with his moments of laughter. And the old washerwoman has finished her cleaning and gone. But the bamboo hangs heavy in the bondage of quicksilver daydreams, 
And a lonely child longingly looks for a place to belong You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And that was Towns Van Zandt with Quicksilver Daydreams of Maria. Next up on Wednesday Breakfast, we're going to be hearing from Maria H., a Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer with the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. We'll be talking about sexual and reproductive health for migrant and refugee women and the role of service providers in removing barriers to accessing health services. I spoke with Maria yesterday afternoon, and I started by asking her to tell me about the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health and the work they do. So the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health is a national community-based organisation run by and for women from migrant and refugee communities. Um, So we started in 1978 and... We started visiting local factories in Melbourne um, to talk to migrant women working there um, about about contraception and family planning mainly. Um, And I guess since then, we've really just expanded and now we conduct research, advocacy, we feed into government uh, submissions and um, work with other community and health organisations to improve the health and well-being of, of all women from migrant and refugee backgrounds. And um, could you talk a little about the importance of having services for migrant and refugee women that are led by migrant and refugee women and that have a, a high level of collaboration and an opportunity for people to shape the system they're in? Sure, yeah. Well, I think we all know that health and well-being is crucial, um, not only for for people themselves, but also for um, advancing social equality, gender equality uh, and health in general. So I suppose for health services, it's really important to, to tailor their services so they are culturally appropriate and sensitive to the needs of migrant refugee women. And we've been working in this area and we've seen that one of the best things that really improves or advances the health of migrant refugee women is preventative health education and improving information for women in their own languages. So we've developed a really unique and groundbreaking, we think, education model that really builds migrant women's health literacy and empowers them to be informed uh, health community um, consumers. And uh, we do this by reaching women in their first language Um, in their day-to-day lives, uh, whether they're working, studying, um, parenting or socialising. So sessions are delivered by highly skilled um, and trained community-based bilingual health educators in locations that are accessible and culturally appropriate for women. And obviously due to COVID, we've had to move most of that work online, but we've over the last 18 months or so continued to provide that really crucial information for women 
Yeah. And how has that transition been throughout COVID? I think we were also all reminded last year of the importance of having health information available to people in their native language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're in our fifth lockdown now. So it's becoming more and more important to develop methods to be able to reach women where they are. And I guess it was pretty rocky to begin with. We had to kind of jump jump on the online space really quickly um, to ensure that we could get that information out to women. Yeah, so that was all COVID-related information. So that was really, really important. So we had to adapt to that changing circumstances and, and be really dynamic. And just going back to having services that are led by migrant and refugee women, can you think of an example of a system or a process that was developed in the past that was an example of someone trying to fix the problem from the outside in that had to be reworked? We see this kind of thing happening all the time in mainstream services and it's a really interesting thing to be able to develop policies in response to particular issues without the input and the leadership of migrant women or the groups that are most affected. So we really advocate for uh, policy development and initiatives that are intersectional, that are led by migrant women, that do include the leadership of migrant women. Because otherwise, if women aren't leading these initiatives, then they're going to fail if, if the initiatives don't respond to all of the issues facing migrant women. For example, if the response doesn't consider women's migration background or the entitlements that are placed on on their visas or their capacity to even get to a service or where they're located or their levels of education if it's not meeting all of all of these really sort of complex criteria or factors that that really play out in women's lives it's not going to meet the needs um, of the women yeah absolutely And how do migrant women compare to Australian-born women when it comes to health outcomes? So, I mean, the research is there and, um, and, you know, we've we've been doing a lot of work in this area. Uh, We've got a section of reproductive health data report coming out next month, um, which we're launching, uh, which will be launched by the Minister for Health. And the research is pretty clear that that migrant women continue to have lower levels of access to sexual and reproductive health services um, and also poorer health outcomes in a range of areas. So migrant and refugee women are at greater risk, for example, of contracting a sexually transmitted condition. They're less likely to access health interventions at at an earlier point. So they're less likely to access antenatal care and they have poorer maternal and child health outcomes, there are higher rates of perinatal mental health issues, higher rates of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia um, and stillbirth. And, you know, they're unlikely to have access to evidence-based in-language um, and culturally appropriate information. So, yeah, we, we are seeing that migrant refugee women are continuing to have poorer levels um, of health literacy and, and poorer health outcomes particularly in sexual and reproductive health. And what are some of the main barriers there for women accessing these services? I think one of the main barriers, we have to think about barriers being structural. So we could say that migrant women may find it difficult to navigate the health system because they might not have a proficiency in English. That's a structural barrier that needs to be considered. So we're seeing that 
that there are issues around uh, visa entitlements, which means that, that migrant women might not be able to access particular services, for example, abortion care services. If you're an international student, there might be particular visa issues that mean that you can't exercise your reproductive autonomy. And so another big issue is cultural appropriateness of services. Services aren't responding appropriately to the needs of migrant women. So there are really important structural issues to consider. And as just having a read through some of the information you had available um, on your website, and I noticed in one section, just in regards to service providers, there was written, uh, while there is now a general acceptance of culture and diversity in health service delivery, uh, there's still a lack of understanding of what is required to implement culturally appropriate and relevant services. So could you tell me about some of the work the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health does in terms of educating service providers? Yeah, sure. So I think the one of the important things to remember is, you know, that that culturally responsive service delivery is is not just about um, being able to interact with the person from from the different background. It's not just about, you know, um, acknowledging that this person is from, for example, from a Chinese background or from an Indian background. Culturally responsive service delivery is really about trying to remove all barriers to access for people. So we work with community organisations and service providers in trying to help services understand all of the barriers to access. This may be being able to work with interpreters in a way that's that's appropriate and ethical. It may be engaging more bicultural workers in the workforce, but it's also about understanding, you know, as I said earlier, that visa is an issue for women and people from migrant communities and that also that gender is an issue as well. And so when we talk about cultural responsiveness, we really want to move away from this idea that it's just about being culturally competent. So nobody is, you know, nobody can be culturally competent. Um, Culture is such a dynamic, shifting and complex term that's laden with power. Um, And it's also about understanding your privilege as well as a health service provider and what that might mean and unpacking your own biases and being non-judgmental. And so it's a process of looking inward as much as it is looking outward. And so for us, we are trying to kind of help service providers understand that process as well. So thinking about how the individual is is really part of a, a larger system in health and that the health system also has its own culture. Yeah, definitely. And um, finally, how can women connect and access the services that the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health provides? Yeah, sure. So our health education programs are funded by the Victorian government, so they're free. Women who are interested in our health education programs can reach out to MCWH by visiting our website, www.mcwh.com.au. And we can arrange for a trained health educator to to come and deliver a session for a group of women. And all the information is on our website. We've also got um, multilingual information about a range of health topics uh, also on our website as well. So there are, there are hundreds of in-language resources on a range of women's health topics 
that are online as well. And of course, we've also got a toll-free number. It's 1-800-656-421. And a lot of our staff are, are currently working from home, but um, we'll, we'll try and get back to, back to anyone as soon as we can. I will also mention um, we've got a launch coming up for our sectional reproductive health data report which sort of compiles all the research and data, up-to-date research and data about sexual and reproductive health and, the, and sort of the state of migrant women's reproductive health in Australia. So that's on the 4th of August. That was Maria H., a Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer with the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health, talking to me about removing barriers to health and well-being for migrant and refugee women. Now let's go to a song from Ichiko Aoba. This is porcelain.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us, uh, Aboriginal Radio, and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Our next guest is Theo Boltman, a 15-year-old performer, student and activist. They are currently performing at La Mama Theatre in a play called The Mermaid, which is a contemporary take on the famous traditional fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, by Hans Christian Andersen. The play opened last week and then had to hit pause when Victoria went into lockdown. But the cast and crew are still optimistic about continuing their season when restrictions lift. Theo is here with me now to share more about this innovative work, how it came about and why it resonates with audiences today. Good morning, Theo. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. I'd like to hop straight in to get an understanding of what this production is about. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, and then that was memorialised in the Disney adaptation. So we all are fairly familiar with Ariel, the mermaid who gives up her voice and her life to seek love above the sea. Does The Mermaid, the production you're involved in, does that follow the same storyline? At points, yes, I think we certainly take a different ending. I'm not going to give anything away. But I think with this one, we, we really explore the ideas of the mermaid's isolation and how it's, she really is a teenager because I'm not sure how clear that it is in the Disney film. But in this, she's like a 14-year-old turning 15 and we really wanted to explore those themes. That like, she's just like me. She's not going to get married or whatever. Like, I think that's really important and a really important part of the story. So is that clear from the outset that her objectives and values and I suppose life goals are different to how they were 200 years ago when that fairy tale was created? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, other than the fact that there's a line that says I'm almost 15, but I think especially through the dialogue and her actions, it's made really clear that maybe she doesn't care as much about the prince and the idea of that she's going to the land because of men. I feel like she doesn't care about that as much as the Disney Little Mermaid does. What does she care about? 
I think she cares about independence. I think the sea is such a contained space for her. I mean, we could say with the world we're on, the sky's the limit, but there really is a limit of like the world above for her. And I think she wants to be able to explore that. She wants to be able to walk on the earth. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because all she wants is legs. She doesn't really care about men or power. All she wants is these legs. Is it also about breaking out from the boundaries of her world? Definitely, definitely. I think she has a very complicated relationship with her father and the ocean. And I think that's such an important thing that we explore and how her father, I feel like in the movie, it's kind of like, oh, her father's like a bit controlling, but like he loves her. Well, in this, it's made very clear that like her father controls every little thing she says and it's like very much not okay. And I think she wants to break out of that. So tell us about the performers because there's quite a group of you who are teenagers yourselves and this adaptation is on the VCE playlist. So it's designed primarily for a teenage or a young adult audience. So how does that reflect in your experience of being in the play and also the process of creating this work? This has been the most interesting process I've ever been involved with. I mean, I started this process when I was 12 years old and I'm about to turn 16. Like, I've certainly grown up with these people. Uh, Our cast is very, we're a very interesting bunch. We range from 10 years old to 19 years old. We're all, there's nine of us, we're all really close. And I think the development process has been so interesting because there's been so many and we've really, it's been a coming of age. Like the Little Mermaid is a coming of age, but we've all come of age at the same time, which I think makes this so much more powerful because I think a lot of theatre shows, they meet three, four months beforehand, rehearse and then perform while this like every little action, we have created a hundred version of those. And I think that's what makes this so beautiful. And given that long time span uh, for the the creation of the work, that means that you were working on it pre-COVID as well as during the uh, pandemic and the lockdowns. Has the experience of the lockdowns and the pandemic and the way that has affected us as individuals and a society, has that fed into the interpretation or the experience within the work itself? Absolutely. I mean, other than the fact that we talk about 2020, I think the work's become a lot more powerful because the mermaid is in a very contained space and she feels very lonely. And we kind of connected to that thing before, but now after being COVID all stuck in our houses and I mean, in Melbourne, still stuck in our houses, I feel like we connect to that theme so much more and understand what she's going through. And especially that idea of being contained and not being able to go beyond your own world, you know, when we have our borders shut and, you know, we can't even go to particular shops or other people's homes that must really resonate with the restrictions that were placed on her by her family and the rules of the kingdom. I mean, definitely. I mean, the only difference is these rules are actually important. The Little Mermaid's rules aren't exactly important. (laughs) But, yeah, I think it is really powerful. 
And as the sense of belonging and the bonds that you've created with the group in the theatre, has that been something that's been helpful as well for you personally during all the changes and ups and downs of this difficult time we've all been through? Definitely. I like. I feel like this wouldn't have been such an incredible performance if we weren't also connected. I mean, during this lockdown, we could have all maybe texted once in a while, but we've been checking with each other every day. We had a two-hour Zoom last night where we all just crocheted and knitted and saw how each other were doing. Like, I feel like that we're, we're a family. I mean, during this intense two-week rehearsal period we had a couple of weeks ago, like, we literally saw each other every day for eight hours every day. Like, most people don't get to experience that. And I feel so lucky and privileged to have been able to connect with people that I'm not even related to. Like, last year we met every Tuesday usually to just, like, try new things. I got to dance on Zoom. We got to bring in things we liked related to The Mermaid. And this lockdown, I guess, yeah, we've really got to think about why this work is so amazing and what we want to change and yeah I think obviously this lockdown isn't ideal it's not great but I think this lockdown's made us all realize how close we are to each other and how we love each other and how this show is so important. Well I, I do hope that the restrictions open up and that your show's back on at La Mama. I believe it was sold out so there'll be a lot of people that have got tickets that are really hungry to see it and probably a lot more that would have liked to have got tickets so yeah we'll have to wait and see what happens. Just before we finish up I just wanted to touch on some of the other contemporary aspects of uh, the production because it's not only the themes that have been uh, reimagined but the way in which the production is delivered isn't a particularly traditional drama form. Can you tell us about some of the innovative new uh, technologies and uh, dance forms that uh, are introduced into the the production to make it resonate? I definitely will without giving too much away. I think the set itself is such a contemporary idea of us all being confined into this one space and I think dance and movement is really important in this. I mean We go from me kind of moving around stage to different people standing there to us doing this ridiculously fake dance to the H2O theme song. I think movement is so important in this piece and it really, I mean, actions speak more than words. And I think that really resonates in this piece. And I believe there's some Tumblr and YouTube videos and a few other multimedia elements. Definitely, yeah. I mean, we're... But Gen Z were obsessed with the internet, so we knew we couldn't tell The Little Mermaid without actually making it about ourselves. So there are plenty of TikTok, YouTube, fan fiction references that you can't just ignore because this was The Little Mermaid 2021, not The Little Mermaid 1989. Like we really had to tell a tale that resonates with us, not Disney's version. Well, it sounds absolutely amazing. And uh, as I said, fingers crossed. Uh, we, we really hope that lockdown finishes and that as many people as possible can come and see you perform. You've obviously put so much work in um, over a really long period of time. So uh, good luck. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. That was Theo Boltman, one of the young performers in La Mama's The Mermaid, temporarily on pause, but... Check the website. La Mama will be uh, informing its audience and ticket holders 
when this performance and season can resume. It, uh, it, it sounds really fantastic. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. And that's our show for today. A big thank you to all our guests and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. This is Chabuco Grande with Una Laja Noche. Y me sobrecoge y me pierde Sabacueca, sabacueca Me pierde una larga noche ¿Por qué será la noche tan larga y alucinada Y tan sola y tan desalmada si es solo? Y es solo una larga noche, Samacueca, Samacueca, es solo una larga noche. La noche debiera ser larga aurora, perfumada, diáfana y azulada. Una sábana bordada de rumores y de amores o estrella de la mañana Invasora desvelada de mi ventana cerrada Zamacueca, Zamacueca, de mi ventana cerrada Noche nunca es aurora que llega por la mañana Es solo larga cornisa que da la vuelta a la nada Samacueca, Samacueca, que da la vuelta a la nada Solo miedo mi noche, miedo lento, lento y largo, siempre lento, siempre dentro, dentro de una larga noche. Samacueca, Samacueca, me pierde una larga noche y es solo una larga noche. Samacueca, Samacueca, de mi ventana cerrada. 
que da la vuelta a la nada Samacueca, Samacueca, dentro de una larga noche. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.